You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. In this episode, we're talking about stakeholder capitalism with two people who are leaders and, in my view, the gold standard in this area. First, my colleague, Dame Vivian Hunt. She's a senior partner in McKinsey's London office who has done a lot of work both within the firm and with clients in stakeholder capitalism. In 2018, she was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for her services to the economy and also to women in business. Vivian, welcome. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure to be here. And also Paul Pullman. As CEO of Unilever for 10 years, Paul ran what was not only one of the best performing companies in the sector, but also one that was a real pioneer in stakeholder capitalism. When he stepped down in 2019, he became co-founder and chair of Imagine, where he is now helping other companies to achieve these goals. And he's also chair of Oxford Syed Business School, as well as honorary chair of the International Chamber of Commerce. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Diane. Look forward to it. So, Vivian, lay out the case for stakeholder capitalism. It really is a term I think that we're hearing a lot more of lately. You're right, Diane. Stakeholder capitalism is not new. It is a broader concept than shareholder capitalism. Absolutely at the core is a successful business that delivers on the economic returns over the mid and long term that any shareholder or investor would expect. But stakeholder capitalism is broader by considering everyone a company's actions touches, whether that's employees, suppliers, activists, consumers, local communities, the environmental context. It requires companies to take a broader consideration of who their stakeholders are and factor that in to their strategy and choices. The good news is we know companies that do that are more resilient and also perform better. They also have more success building trust, which is important for their long-term success. It's very clear that in 2020, the multiple uh, priorities and crises that the world and the economy were facing came into really sharp relief. We're still living and managing through it, but it reminded us in a pretty foundational way that we live in a dynamic system. The fact that the crisis had multiple vectors health, economic, social justice, technology, and uneven effects around the world really reminded business leaders that we have to respond in a different way. Businesses have realized a pretty urgent need for change, not just because of 2020, but the cumulative effect of these crises. And stakeholder needs, whether they're your employees, activists, different tranches of investors, customers, understanding their needs and managing them better and in a more holistic way came to the fore. Paul, you are somebody that's been talking about this for years. I'd love to just even get a sense as to how your thinking has evolved on stakeholder capitalism. Why did it matter to you at Unilever? First of all, I fully agree with Vivian that uh, the current model, which is uh, basically shareholder primacy, as a prevailing model is is a failed doctrine, in my opinion, that uh, has shown to destroy the natural resources, the social cohesion. And Vivian has talked that well with some of the effects 
that we've seen quite uh, transparently during COVID. So a longer-term multi-stakeholder model has always been more attractive to me. You know, I've always believed that business needs to be accepted by society. So competing on trust and responsibility is probably some of the most important things that it has to do, as well as creating this deeper relationship with all of its stakeholders that is built on that trust. I felt from day one that I entered business, which was a little bit by serendipity, that uh, I didn't want to be part of creating the world's problems, but I wanted to be part of solving the world's problems. And uh, I don't think you want to work for a company where you keep earning when the world is burning. And this is what we are facing right now with climate change. When I entered Unilever, it was not a company that was in good shape. It had significantly seen its turnover decline over decades. It had seen its share price stabilize or decline when the rest of the world was moving up. And there was something in the book from Jim Collins, Good to Great, Mm. that nurtured the core before you stimulate progress that uh, resonated with me. So I went back to the company's core to Lord Lever, end of the 19th century, where he already talked about shared prosperity, where the purpose of his company was to make hygiene commonplace in Victorian Britain, where one out of two babies wouldn't make it past year one. And he was entirely focused on building a multi-stakeholder model, not just a shareholder primacy model. And that was very appealing to me that these boundaries that uh, the company operated under were redefined to be a little bit broader than just pure performance or pure financial data, but also started to include people, planet, and profit, if you want to. And that was the beginning of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan that uh, we put out in 2010, more or less. Vivian, I heard you echo uh, good to great. Yeah, well, I think many companies, if they go back to their foundation, you know, where did we start? What was our original purpose? When you look at those foundational principles, many companies incorporated, they joined together financial capital, human capital, and systems to do something more than just make money. And so the notion was that you had to have a healthy business that created an economic profit. So the shareholder capitalism and the economic imperative is, of course, at the core But most companies at their foundation had more than that in their system. And whether it's the foundation of Unilever, Hershey in the U.S., many Japanese companies, German companies, you see many, many incorporations that were really about the corporate body, people collaborating, working together in different ways in an organized system. So I think when businesses really look at their heritage, go back to their original purpose statements, they often find seeds you know, the roots of the solution to the problems we face today. And the journey that Paul and Unilever went on during your early days is a familiar one where you often hear CEOs and leaders going back to their roots to understand more deeply or to challenge, improve, contradict what's in their history. And and many companies now, I think, would be well served by going back to their roots and checking how it fits with this notion of a broader purpose. I just want to echo what Vivian is saying. You go back to the core to learn from that, but then you have to adjust your plans to the current realities, which are quite starkly different often from when the company began. And I entered Unilever at the height of the financial crisis, where it was clear to me that uh, our system was failing us, a system with uh, too high a level of private or public debt overconsumption, leaving too many people behind. Unfortunately, 
during the financial crisis 10 years ago, we didn't heed those lessons. Climate change went up on a very dangerous trajectory. Inequality further increased. We saw that expressed at the polls in uh, populism or xenophobia, increased nationalism and decrease in multilateralism. But we also saw that at the people level, was increasingly more and more people in the streets or speaking up that they really expected the companies for which they work for to take a more socially responsible model. And that's why I've often talked that what we need to do is move from uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility, which is really becoming less bad and partly addressing some of these issues, but still to your own benefit. We need to move to RSP which is responsible social cooperations. As a responsible social cooperation, you really try to be net positive. Too many companies, even today, they think that they can outsource their value chain and by doing so, outsource their responsibilities as well. And that simply doesn't work anymore. So this moves it up to a much higher level by putting purpose at the core, by putting sustainability at the core. You actually say, we focus on all these other stakeholders and by doing so, you'll have better profits and better shareholder return. So it's a result of what you do. It's actually not the reason for doing. Not different than the white blood cells in your body. We need the white blood cells to live. But I hope we agree that we don't live for the white blood cells. Vivian, one of the prerequisites for cooperation is trust. And that is something that has not really been surplus when it comes to how people view business, how much is that an obstacle? Well, I I think there are probably two obstacles to the pivot that Paul's describing. One is recognizing that you need to have more holistic, multivariate objectives, but not knowing how to track and measure them across your stakeholders. I do think a lot of business leaders are well-intended. You know, 92% of populations in recent reports we've done say they want their employers to promote an economy that serves all uh, people, stakeholders, and is more holistic. Many CEOs repeat that with their purpose narrative, but it's then connecting that responsible social corporation to the actual outcomes for stakeholders and outcomes for their performance that's hard. Secondly, you earn trust over time. It's one of those things that can be eroded in a moment, but takes a long time to build. And so part of that is competence and resiliency around what you do as a corporation, being reliable as an employer in your commitments to various stakeholders. But it's also about intimacy, knowing them well, having a way of staying in touch. I think we call it sentiment analysis if you are powering it with AI in modern language. How do you stay close to and genuinely informed by the probably competing interests of your different stakeholders? You know, the business mindset, I think, is more humble now than it's ever been. And it is a good thing. And I think once stakeholders believe that business leaders are trying to solve the problems genuinely with their competing interests in mind, they'll be more confident and more trusting of business leaders. So while I'm encouraged by the recent Edelman report that um, launched at Virtual Davos, and Paul, you will have seen that, that listed your supervisor or your business manager as one of the most trusted sources, one, it's a caution for governments and other sources that they need to build trust. But two, it's a responsibility that I think now more than ever, businesses have to take seriously. That's true. The trust barometer did look very um, hopeful, I think, for CEOs this year. And Paul, I was reminded um, when you mentioned white blood cells that if I was to go to central casting and and pick two leaders, you know, I think you and Vivian are very much off the script 
you started out wanting to be a doctor when you grew up, did you not, or, or a priest? Well, I started being a priest until I discovered the limitations of that profession in the Catholic Church. So then I moved to uh, become a doctor. In the Netherlands, we have what we call a numerous fixes, where the government only limits uh, the number of places as the studies are being paid for. So unfortunately, when that didn't work out, I had to find something else. When my father made clear that I had to make a living, and by serendipity, I ended up in business and worked for three great companies, P&G, uh, then Nestle, and then um, Unilever, all at the executive level. So that was a tremendous experience. And and one of the things that I think I learned there is that all these companies have been around for 150 years or more. P&G started in 1837, Nestle in 1867 as a coincidence, uh, Unilever in the end of the 19th century. And these are companies that are built to last. And the question really is why. And I think we're trying at least to operate under this longer term multi-stakeholder model, which is very, uh, more importantly, strongly values-based. And this comes back to the truth and and trust. You build trust with truth. And um, truth is so often missing now from society, from the political level, from the media level, uh, obviously exaggerated the last few years. And that's why you've seen actually the trust go down. And yes, it is true that business comes out a little bit better, but if you look at the absolute levels of trust, we have a lot still to go for. What has changed over the last 50 years is that 50 years ago, you could look at a balance sheet and sort of decide what the value of a company is. Now, today, 85% is in intangibles or goodwill, or in fact, it is trust or reputation. So the value of a company now is created in trust and reputation. And that means very much do what you say, say what you do. That means very much working in a in a much more transparent uh, environment. That also means being part of these broader partnerships or bigger transformations that make you a net positive company I talked about. When I started the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, I put out 50 targets, three overarching targets on environmental and social, but 50 targets. And people said, you're totally nuts to put out 50 targets. But the whole idea there was to create that transparency that was actually building that trust. And it served us well. And it's regrettable to me that even today, 12 or 13 years later, we're still the only company that has done two human rights reports, a report on child labor and slavery. So we were not shy either to be transparent about the toughest challenges that we had in our business models. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think the background as well makes a difference with the mindset. Vivian, what did you want to be when you grew up? I don't believe CEO was your initial passion that drove you to where you are today. Oftentimes when you're um, older in your life and more experienced, you apply language and logic to yourself as a child that probably didn't exist when you were younger. So in my case, my parents were just very committed to service you know, high quality education and being of service to your family and to society. My mom was a primary school teacher and my father uh, was in the military and then later became a pastor or a priest. So Paul, my dad eventually ended his career as a priest. So you may still have another chapter ahead of you. <laughs> and my mother was a teacher as well in primary school. So we have that in common. But it's that notion of service and it was very present in the work that they chose um, to do and how they chose to take something that might have been restrictive 
for them. My father, although he had a college education, he was an African-American male coming out of school in the early 60s to a very segregated and polarized society that didn't have any of the inclusive norms that we talk about today. And so going into the military was one of the few options he had to put his education to good use, but he turned that into a real example and positive. So this notion of service was one really big concept. And secondly, I would say recognizing that your that your life, your literally your existence is a function of the cumulative contributions and sacrifices that others have made before you. Um, and that can be something as simple as voting rights legislation, you know, it very easy to see how those campaigns and battles for justice have uh, created rights and entitlements for people all over the world, all the way through to the clothes you're wearing, the things you buy, the luxuries we enjoy today. So when I first got out of of uni, I I went into the Peace Corps. I became a a Asajj Fahm or a midwife in West Africa, um, partly just to make a change from what I had done before, partly to live and work deeply in a culture that was uh, a predominantly African or Caribbean culture to live and, and work in a culture that was intrinsically of my heritage. And third, probably just to get away from my parents. <laughs> all, <laughs> all the things you do as a 21-year-old. Um, but it, it, but it really uh, turned me on to the importance and foundational nature of healthcare, uh, which is a big economic driver and foundational to all of our health. And secondly, to the concept of service. And so those are the things that really shaped me then and now, if I'm honest about it. Paul, let me turn to you because you're now taking your experiences and conveying them both at the policy level, but also with other leaders who want to put this into practice. What advice do you have for somebody at the company level in terms of implementing this? Well, in terms of uh, implementing it is what uh, the reason I created Imagine was that uh, I think broadly many of the people are aware of uh, the direction we need to go and the issues we need to attack of food security, of climate change, of poverty or inequality, etc. But unfortunately, it is all changed within a current system, which leads to incrementalism and not the step changes that we need. We need to be bolder and braver in what we do. And in a society where still there are a lot of skeptics and cynics, where change is undoubtedly difficult, you first have to work on that inner core. And then you have to work on the external side or the outer core, as I may call it. And that truly starts by realizing that it's not about yourself. At the moment, you realize that by investing in others and putting them ahead of your own, you're actually better off yourself as well, is the moment that I believe you hit a sweet spot in leadership. And that means that we need to get more comfortable working with the different sectors of society, civil society and governments together with business, because these issues are such magnitude now that nobody can solve them alone. It means that we need to have different contracts with society, both shorter term and longer term, and create these partnerships that at times might be a little bit uncomfortable, but are the only way to drive these systemic changes. And we realize that the CEOs themselves might have some limitations built in inherently in their jobs or in the current structures. So our theory of change very simply is to work collectively to drive on these broader system changes that uh, individual companies cannot do at all. I like the idea of bravery as a leader, which isn't irrational. It's just showing courage in the face of the decisions and choices that you have. So you look at Dan Shulman when he went into PayPal and made the decision to review their pay standards 
increase the benefits, add shareholding, so shared ownership and incentives and outcomes as a conscious investment and decision. And there's no question it has unleashed an engagement, commitment, and enthusiasm from its employees, but also helped with other parts of the system. When you have a new opportunity, it's an opportunity to ask yourself, you know, how can I embed my own purpose, my own narrative, as young people say today, into the role that I now have with this moment. Some people are dreaming of becoming a manager, dreaming of becoming CEO, dreaming of leading an organization in some way. But when you have that opportunity, I agree with Paul that there is a a moment of reflection that you should have to, to pause and consult and ask yourself, how can I make sure that I feel authentic and genuinely motivated by what we're asked to do here? And that what I'm going to stand up and advocate for with all the challenges and contradictions and difficulty that probably lie ahead for most of us as business leaders, that I can do that in a way that's authentic and meaningful for me personally, as well as for the company. But that pause for what's the opportunity for me to make a bigger difference and how could I add to or change my leadership model, particularly when you're changing roles or starting something new is I think it's just a really important moment for a lot of leaders. And don't, don't you feel, uh, Vivian, that, that COVID has given a lot of people that pause to reflect a little bit more on their own purpose and the, the higher order for businesses to start to strive for? I feel relatively positive about that, that many have used that pause for, uh, for good. I agree with you, Paul. And I think once you add that empathy, clarity of communication, and sort of iterative problem-solving, system problem-solving with your stakeholders, with your employees, with your shareholders, particularly powered by the transparency that AI and data are providing us. Once you start and commit to that level of engagement and communication, you can't stop, right? Once you've engaged with your supply chain in a more transparent way, or once you've shared, you know, in your case, those 50 goals or a broader set of objectives beyond economics, I don't think CEOs and companies have the option to go back to the way we were. You know, the word transform, it means to change in a way that you can't go back to the way you were before. And I feel like 2020 was that kind of moment because even the language we're using to describe the impact that business can have on the world has changed. And I think and I hope it's a permanent change in how leaders are thinking of themselves and what their organizations can do. Now, if if I'm a if I'm a shareholder and I, I I go back to that, I guess it's Milton Friedman's doctrine of the social responsibility of businesses to increase profits. How does this affect my faith in leaders' abilities to deliver on um, how I might measure success in a company? Paul? Well, there, there are two things. I always say that Adam Smith wrote this book, The Theory of Moral Sentiment, uh, 17 years before he wrote The Wealth of Nations. And even if Milton Friedman would be around today, I don't think that he would write the same thing for which he got rewarded the Nobel Prize. I really think that he would be advocating the multi-stakeholder, longer-term model of value creation. Don't forget that the issues when he wrote that were quite different. The organizations were set up quite differently. The financial market was quite different. There was a higher level of involvement of the shareholders. Businesses were more local and were forced to be linked to their local communities. They had a human face. So Milton Friedman, which is now over 50 years ago, should not be judged by today's standards. And I don't think he would have the same opinions. If you believe in shareholder primacy, 
then there is one thing that has definitely happened over the last 10 years, something that I probably did not have as much of a benefit from when I started the Unilever journey, but was convinced about, which is that we can now show with hard facts that a more diverse organization or an organization that has built more resilience in its value chain or an organization that pays its people uh, decent wages or an organization that internalizes the challenges of climate change. All these things were now with hard facts able to show that they're also resulting in uh, overwhelmingly higher returns. There obviously is the standard factors of having a good strategy and hiring the right people. But broadly, we see that now. And the financial market is catching on as well. A lot of people were saying, oh, this whole area of ESG will go in reverse. It's actually the opposite. If there's one lesson that we've learned is that it actually has accelerated, that more businesses have put purpose at the core in starting this transformation, that the social and environmental issues that people now understand this interconnectedness that Vivian talked about and that you can't have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. I also believe there's a whole new generation evolving faster than I had uh, expected myself that is calling out. You know, there there is now a greater thornburn in every organization. They're working out if you're not aggressive enough on climate change, if your company works on face recognition with the government and people feel that's an intrusion, if you don't fight for the rights of LGBTs or other minorities, people are increasingly speaking up. So I think there is a movement for change in society that is probably bigger than we realize in very tough external conditions with COVID, that as we come out and start to rebuild these economies, that we will benefit from. The final thing that I think COVID has shown us is we have now spent $13, $14 trillion to just save lives and livelihoods. And frankly, all that money has been spent because of the failure of us to act earlier. But it has also shown us that the cost of not acting now is significantly higher than the cost of acting, which means if you turn that positively, that businesses that understand that are probably sitting on the biggest business opportunity that you have. Greening our society moving forwards, retrofitting buildings, moving to green energy, mobility system electrifying, restoring our natural capital, all these things are high multipliers on investment return. They also create more jobs. They create better jobs. So businesses that position themselves in that direction will be rewarded. And the the peak of the thing you saw the last year happening with Tesla, which shot up in value to the same market cap as all the other companies combined in the car industries. And the same is happening in many other industries. So I believe we're sitting on the crust of a revolution that uh, of a scale and magnitude we've never seen before. And, and even if you look over the longer term, uh, Paul, those same patterns show when we look at our long term data sets, you know, across countries for value creation, companies that have performed better, have had multiple goals, are more holistic in those outcomes. They're broader in terms of the metrics that they measure. And that's both at investor level as well at operational level. And that's uh, every country as well as every sector. So whether you look at the near-term recent examples or you look over the longer 5, 10, 15-year cycle of value creation, companies that have more broader diversity of goals and objectives and have fulfilled those in sustainable ways do find higher returns. And you have to have the confidence as a leadership team, that you can have a clear strategy, deep understanding of your stakeholders, 
sustain and manage that over time, manage the risks and the downsides. Lots of us are afraid of making mistakes, particularly when there's increased transparency. And instead of engaging with stakeholders, we shy away from them. So it takes really good architecture for what your strategy is, really good architecture of performance metrics and outcomes, contingency so that you are able to make some mistakes, able to change course, and you'll see that those more diverse investments do result in higher returns. So whether it's in the near term powered by technology, innovation, or the long term data sets that we see in the McKinsey Global Institute, they're both correlated with a more holistic, broader definition of stakeholder capitalism. Vivian, what's the role of the board? Because we've talked a lot about the stakeholders externally. Any thoughts as to how both the relationship with the board, the makeup of the board has to change in this environment? We, We try to give boards and executive teams courage so that they can take the sometimes difficult decisions that they need to take. And in a sense, a board's responsibility is to provide an external and internal balance and challenge and support for an executive team. The board itself has to represent a diverse range of views and stakeholders, and that's why sometimes the most effective boards are ones that have ways to systematically include the input of different stakeholders through their committee structure and outcomes. But at the end of the day, if their annual report is about financial returns only, their aperture is probably too narrow. And so we'd argue that first, taking this broader definition of what the company is solving for and having that very clear in the purpose of the company and what the impact report or the annual impact report speaks to so that really the board, both in its composition and inputs that inform the company's strategy and decision, and also how it counsels and supports the executives reflects those diversity of views. The evidence doesn't suggest that that's inconsistent with Uh, strong performance and outcomes. When you look at Unilever or Patagonia or uh, PayPal, Salesforce, many companies in many different sectors that we could name, it is a diversity of goals endorsed by the board that leads them in the right direction. So I think there's a lot boards can do in terms of the governance model, but the action, if you will, the activation takes place at the executive level. If I can build on that, I could not stress the importance of a diversified board. And um, one of the things we did in Unilever right away was 50-50 in terms of gender diversity. But we had two people from Africa. We had two people from China. We made it an absolutely uh, global board, but more importantly, also in competence. See, what you now see is that most of the CEOs will say the short-term pressure comes actually from the boards. We still see a misalignment between Uh, incentive systems and executive pay and what this broader multi-stakeholder business model requires. Uh, Recent studies would show that only 7% of board people are climate competent. 17% have ESG knowledge. And then if you look at the uh, turnover in CEOs where the average tenure is only four and a half years now, this is clearly not enough to address these issues. If you are a board right now, and you are not calculating in the other risks or opportunities that are around the planetary boundaries, the social equations that we've talked about, you probably are starting to take more risk on yourself as a board member instead of less. But I do believe that we significantly need to transform the boards. I think too many have interpreted it too narrowly as being a fiduciary duty to shareholder primacy. When if you actually go back to the spirit or letter of the law in most of the jurisdictions, it had a different intention. 
So to bring that back and provide that breathing space also for CEOs to become brave and bold, as we talked about, is a very important thing that needs to be addressed. We need to measure what we treasure. Uh, Our accounting system is basically a a return on financial capital. We need to start looking at our accounting systems to also include the return on environmental and social capital. There is a major effort going on now with the IFRS Foundation. They got over 600 responses, overwhelmingly, obviously, around climate change, but also around other areas, especially the social part of why we need to force companies to disclose more and start to measure that and be able to compare. It it is very clear that companies that report are making more progress. They're also probably better leaders and more responsible. So getting our accounting systems to change and measurements is an important uh, second thing we need to work on. Well, and and it also then helps companies clarify which aspect of the outcomes they're solving for can they influence as a company and maybe to the advantage of their customers, employees, shareholders, and which things do they need to work on collectively with other parts of their supply chain in the industry and or with governments. I think it helps clarify the areas where you really want to push on something for differentiation. So a customer or an employee chooses you versus the areas where collectively the industry might have some incentives to change the regulatory frame or innovate new ways of working. I just want to come back, Paul and Diane, to this point about boards. You know, representativeness in terms of intrinsic characteristics, gender, culture, et cetera, is very important. But the skill set point that Paul made is just as important. Technology skills, environmental savvy, experience, understanding, and monitoring sentiment, coaching skills for the executive clear sets of diverse goals in addition to their financial stewardship, and then measuring the right things so that you give the executive the room, the playing field on which they can then be successful. And if boards and investors don't give companies and investors that permission, it's very hard for a leader to really act against this agenda and reach its full potential. One of the things I'd like to address with both of you is the realities and the opportunities that the pandemic working women, for example, have gone backwards to some extent as as we've tried to balance uh, homeschooling, taking care of children, being fully there for our jobs on Zoom calls and such. We've seen the achievement gap widen when it comes to the impact on people of color. What message do we have and how do we address some of these real social costs that we've seen? Let me start with you, Vivian. Well, I would hope that we would not only want to get back to where we were before the pandemic, but actually improve on that. We know in the last couple of recessions, there have not been an improved economic or balanced set of outcomes for historically underrepresented groups in the workplace. You mentioned women or uh, ethnic minorities in some cultures, but it's true also with climate goals. You know, we didn't add anything to make it significantly better. And so the push for a more green, and a more inclusive recovery needs to be explicitly built in to how companies are responding. When we get to a point where the miraculous delivery of the vaccines are at scale in both developed as well as developing economies, and we feel confident communicating, moving around, and interconnecting the way we normally do for business and society to operate, we have to explicitly be able to demonstrate how the company is more green 
how it is more inclusive. And I mean that not only in terms of gender and ethnic representation, but inclusive in terms of skills and its operating practices. And then finally, more interconnected, better use of the data and AI platforms that are connecting us and making the business system increasingly transparent. So I wouldn't say we want to build back the same. We have to build back better than we were, meaning more green, more inclusive, more connected. And I think businesses should be explicit about the initiatives they're doing in their portfolio, strategy, their people and culture, processes, systems, metrics about how they're adding those things in as we collectively come out of the COVID crisis. Yeah, I could not agree more and echo that strongly. Um, It wasn't working before. I don't think we have to be polite about that. Gender equality was taking us 257 years before the crisis. Inequality was going up in every country in the world. Uh, Climate change was on on a curve to get to well above three and a half degrees. It was an absolute disaster that led to uh, COVID crisis in the first place. And by the way, the COVID crisis has not, should not come as a surprise. We've had Ebola, we have Zika, we had SARS. We get pandemics every five to 10 years, unfortunately, increasingly so, as we destroy modern nature and invite these zoonotic diseases in. So it cannot go back to where we came from. The first priority has to be to contain and eradicate the virus. That's not done by all means. And the trade-off between lives and livelihoods that some people keep advocating is, in my opinion, a false dilemma. The second priority is that we have to create the conditions for a broad recovery, and that requires international cooperation. Most of the institutions have failed us. Also during COVID, we saw countries putting out export barriers. We saw a disregard for the needs of the developing markets in many different senses. The sense of cooperation of the multilateral institutions need to be restored if we want to build back better, as Vivian says. And the third priority is to really be sure that we have a new narrative of economic growth, where a more sustainable, a more equitable, a more inclusive economic growth is in fact the one that creates the jobs, the social cohesion, and obviously where we can live in in harmony with planet Earth now and for generations to come. And that narrative is becoming increasingly attractive. The biggest hurdle that we now have will be a further risk of lack of social cohesion. We've seen unemployment go up. And again, it's the people that are on the already suffering from many of the other things that pay a price here as well, the young and the women. So if we don't create the jobs and if we don't make this a more inclusive growth, then the issues of social cohesion are going to be the biggest ones that we have to deal with. So we have to invest significantly more than we've invested to deal with the crisis itself. And that's a challenge because governments, and especially you see that now in Europe, are not as eager to spend more money after they've spent these enormous amounts already in the last year alone. And yet it is absolutely needed to have a Keynesian sort of globally coordinated spending plan to create these jobs. And the good thing is that a greener economy creates more jobs. We've looked at this implementation of the sustainable development goals around the areas of mobility, food and land use, health and well-being, and and cities. And we found an opportunity of $12 trillion and 380 million jobs at a time that we need that most. This year is going to be a very important year because we have the Food Summit. 
We have the Glasgow Summit. We have the Biodiversity Conference. And these are moments now that the countries of this world can make major commitments to help create this framework, then for business, obviously, to follow through. Because ultimately, the financing, the innovations, the ideas have to come from the private sector. But it will only work if the governments put the right frameworks in place. The good thing is, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic, because the stars are aligned now with the chains in administration in the US. Let's not mince words around that. And now we have eight to 10 of the biggest economies in the world making climate commitments, for example, to be net zero by 2050. Those are major changes now that we need to follow through with concrete action and policy changes. And this year is going to be crucial for that. You know, it's very easy to look at problems that have to be addressed in a systemic way, the quality of the education system, the skills uh, coefficient that was required, the um, environmental formula, and believe that it's too big a problem. It's outside my ability to influence as a single company. But you might choose one or two areas and work on those collaboratively with members of your industry and of your supply chain. But within your company, there's a lot you can do to benchmark your uh, responsible social practices as a corporation link them in value creation terms economically as well as other types of value and outcomes and use your skills and differentiation to deliver well for your company and deliver well for your stakeholders. But if you can't make it specific so that your employees and your managers understand it, it's going to be hard for them to deliver. There are many people I'm sure listening who perhaps want to be leaders. Maybe they are starting out in their career and this can be a period in which you feel impotent in the face of all these challenges. Any advice on a personal level that you would have to them? Paul, I'll start with you. Oh, it's always difficult to generalize there, but I'm very open <laughs> about the young people. You know, 50% of the world population is below 30 years old. They're going to be 100% tomorrow. They're very creative. They're purpose-driven. I think we can learn more from them than us telling them how to suck eggs, to be honest. But I would stress perhaps the power of values, integrity, humility, humanity, all the things that Fifian talks about to restore trust are values that are going to be very important. So try to be a leader like that. The power of partnership we talked about to make a difference and to address some of these issues requires us to work differently. I think younger people, again, are better qualified for that. But above all, we've talked here in the last hour, the power of purpose, the passion of uh, finding yourself uh, is, is what gives you passion, perhaps. But purpose is about losing yourself to the service of others. And I think uh, I've realized, as, as Vivian has, that we've just been outright lucky. When I was born in the Netherlands, I didn't have to worry about a piece of bar soap, so I made it past the age of five. I had food, so I didn't have stunting of food security issues. My government paid for the education, which my parents could not afford to give their six children. And that's why I'm talking to you. But at the end of the day, I won the lottery ticket of life. I didn't do anything for this. And if you won the lottery ticket of life, then you only belong to about the 5% of the world population, unfortunately, even today. And then it's your duty to put yourself to the service of the other 95%. And the more we do that, the better will we be off all of us. It was the Dalai Lama who said that if you seek enlightenment for yourself, simply to hence yourself and your position, you miss the purpose. But if you seek enlightenment for yourself to enable you to serve others, you are with purpose. So my simple message is lead a life with purpose. Vivian, any thoughts? 
Paul characterized so well the principles of servant leadership, which is how I would reflect on it. You know, the notion of leading, having something that you're passionate and excited about that you want to do and that you want to contribute to. And by the way, that's no less important at 16 than it is 66 or 106, but that you've got real energy and excitement for, but that you're doing that in a way that's of service to the organizations that you work with, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector. And if you do that, real passion, real expertise, real contribution in service to the business, in service to others, you won't go wrong. I would also say have high ambitions. You know, I think that it's easy to imagine a world that is different than today. But if you think things are fixed, that we can't change, that the economic pie isn't big enough for us to share and distribute in different ways, if we've got to compete over finite resources, then you end up in quite a a reductionist and small mindset. So this aspiration of collectively growing our impact economically, socially, and in many other aspects of our rights and responsibilities, all of the enablers, then the, the pie is big enough to share, if that makes any sense. So high ambition really does matter. And that probably is one of the most exciting things that I hear from talking to my teenagers and the younger generation. The final thing I'd say is recognize that it takes real work. The things we're talking about are just not lofty ideas on a shelf. They're things that real people and real companies have done in collaboration with others and governments. And you've got to put your shoulder to the wheel, you know, learn something with excellence, collaborate with others who have integrity and real skills, and really work with other stakeholders to change things. And that's not easy. You know, Paul and I can talk about different things and you've gone along the journey. We could probably fill the whole podcast with disappointments that we've had over our careers and lives. So don't think that it's going to be um, linear. You know, the arc of history bends towards justice. It doesn't mean that it's going to go in a straight line. And I feel like we're in a period where we've got to straighten up our backs and realize that we've got to focus on these more holistic outcomes as business people, as well as citizens more generally. And and hopefully that's encouraging to young people, as well as uh, some of us who are a little bit older. I cannot think of a better place to end than there. Dame Vivian Hunt, I know you are working with leaders worldwide to promote these issues and deal with these tough challenges. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Paul. And Paul, who is a pioneer in multi-stakeholder capitalism at Unilever, now helping leaders do the same at Imagine and other realms. Paul, thanks for joining us. No, thank you both. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed it. And thank you to the listeners out there for joining us for this conversation. If you do want to know more, of course, go to Imagine and also go to McKinsey's website where we've written not only about the case for stakeholder capitalism, but also how to do it. I'm Diane Brady. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. Facebook.